We're taking last week and this week to talk about evangelism. Uh, Dave preached uh, last week on the story of Zacchaeus, how Jesus came and, and found and saw Zacchaeus and went to his house, and how that encounter with Jesus totally changed who Zacchaeus was, what his affections were for, what he was trying to do in life. So we're looking at a different passage today, but still talking about the same subject, the subject of evangelism. We're looking at Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40. So if you want to turn with me to that, Acts chapter 8. This is another passage that has an encounter that changes the person. We see Philip, the evangelist, one of the deacons of the church, finding the eunuch from Ethiopia, witnesses to witness to him and and uh, the eunuch's life is changed forever after this. So let's read Acts 8.26. <clears throat> now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, for those of you who are taking notes, before I give you the outline, I'd like to uh, do an introduction to what evangelism is. What is the biblical understanding of evangelism? As you know, there's a lot of uh, stereotypes. A lot of times evangelism is considered to be a negative thing. When somebody's evangelizing or proselytizing, that's often used in a very negative context. So what is evangelism biblically? Well, look at verse 35. This is the biblical definition of evangelism. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture... He told him the good news about Jesus. We really should not overcomplicate this matter. 
Evangelism is opening your mouth and speaking about Jesus to someone else. That's all it is. It's verbally communicating the good news, the message, the gospel of Jesus. Now, what is this good news? What is the the content of that message? Well, in our story, if you're a careful Bible reader, you would see that it clearly has to do with the death of Christ. That the message of the gospel has to do with his death. Philip is walking beside the chariot and he overhears the Ethiopian read a passage from Isaiah 53. Now, he overhears them because back in those days people would read out loud. Now, most of us, when you read a book, you don't actually verbalize it, you don't actually vocalize it. But back in those days, people would read out loud. That's how people read. And so Philip actually can hear what the Ethiopian is reading. And so he walks alongside and he asks him a question if he understands that. And the eunuch has a hard time understanding who the passage is about. But this is the passage that he reads. Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Philip explains this passage to the eunuch and explains the rest of Isaiah 53. And he tells him that it is about Jesus, that the prophet isn't speaking about himself, it's not Isaiah who is led to the slaughter, but it's Jesus, the Messiah, who was to come and die for his people. It is Jesus who willingly went to the cross, it is Jesus who was humiliated, and even though Jesus was innocent and he did no wrong and committed no sin, justice was denied him. He was condemned unjustly, unfairly. His trial was rigged and Jesus was killed. His life was taken away. Now why did Jesus do that? And why is it important to us? Why is it that we should tell others about that? Well, look at Isaiah 53 verse 5, just two verses before the passage that the eunuch read. And undoubtedly, he's reading the whole chapter as Philip is walking. And so he's thinking about all these things. This is what verse 5 says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's very clear that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't for him, but it was for us. That Jesus died in our place, for our sake, in our stead. He took the punishment for our sins. He suffered for our failures. He died in our place so we can live in His place. The cross of Christ brought us peace with God. It was Christ's pain that brought us healing. And if you are a believer... If you are in Christ through faith, there's no punishment, there's no wrath, there's no hell that has come into you because Jesus took it all for you on your behalf. Now that is very good news, isn't it? Think about it. As much as we are frustrated with the daily realities of life, right, and we get annoyed with work and people interfering with our plans and all of that stuff and we get sick and struggle with our health and finances. 
But what is the biggest problem that we face as people? What is the cosmic, God-sized problem? The problem is we don't know what God thinks of us. Most people believe in the existence of God. But we don't know, and we are afraid of what God might think of us. That's our biggest problem. In any culture, however it comes out culturally, but in any culture, in any life, that is the biggest problem. What does God think of me? Is he angry with me? Because I know I fail, I know I do wrong things. Is God mad at me? Is he going to punish me? I, I sort of deduce he's a just God, so, so somehow justice must be restored. Is he going to avenge people that I have wronged in my life? What is going to happen to me? That's the biggest question. And in the Gospel, we know that that question has been settled for us in Christ. We, we don't need to wonder anymore what God thinks of us. We know, looking at the cross of Christ, that God loves us and that He took care of that problem for us. We can come to Him freely now. And by grace, He accepts us and loves us because there's no punishment that is due us anymore. It was all taken by Jesus on the cross. So when we think about that good news, this great solution to our greatest problem, and we tell it to somebody else, our hope is always, the hope of evangelism is always that they would accept that message and that they would be converted to Christ, that they would also experience this life that is void of guilt, void of shame, void of uncertainty, what God thinks of me. That now we can have this life that is meaningful and joyful and secure. Everybody wants that life. And so when you share Jesus with them, you hope that they would take it, that they would accept it that they would see that the solution of that cosmic problem has been achieved in Jesus. Let me finish this introduction on evangelism by a quote from J.I. Packer. He's a, he's a theologian, teaches theology in Vancouver. He says, evangelism is an act of communication with a view to conversion. Evangelism is an act of communication. You have to open your mouth and speak. But your hope is that that person would get converted to Jesus, that they would embrace this new life. It is communication about Jesus with a view to conversion, conversion to Jesus. If Jesus is not the focus, it's not evangelism. Evangelism often gets that bad reputation, bad name, because we talk about anything else but Jesus to people. We want them to, to conform to our morality. So we talk about all the issues of their sexuality and family, whatever else we disagree with. Or we talk about politics, and we want them to, to cross the aisle to our side and be either conservative or liberal. And that's the, that's the gospel that we preach. Or we talk about the life of, of discipline, how they need to come to church, and they need to take communion, they need to tithe. But friends, none of that is the gospel. And none of that is evangelism. Now, you may talk about those things. Those are important things. But that's not the content of the Gospel. The Gospel is about Jesus. Evangelism is about Jesus. And so stay focused on Him. What I'd like to do this morning is to show how evangelism, this proclamation of Jesus to others, is connected to the vision of our church. This is good for us because we are looking at this fall as a time of growth and time of 
time of commitment and encouragement and maybe a greater focus. So let's think about evangelism in terms of how it affects the vision of our church. No. The vision for us is to follow Jesus together as a community into friendship and worship and mission. Those three things, worship, friendship, and mission, are the parts, the three parts of our life together as a church. So I'm going to look at this text and correlate evangelism to each one of those areas. Evangelism and worship, number one. By worship, I mean a person's relationship with God. It's not just worship on Sunday morning at church, but it's everything that you do directly with God. It's the vertical dimension of your life. At church, we want to make sure that we are at peace with God, in fellowship with Him, enjoying our relationship with Him, communing with Him, listening to Him, praising Him. Anything that happens between you and God is worship. Now look at how Philip ends up witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's God who tells him to do that. Remember, an angel of the Lord first comes to him and he says, you should leave the successful ministry in Samaria. By the way, great revival is happening in Samaria in the earlier part of chapter 8. An angel comes and says, now you go to this desert place, some road, and I will tell you what to do next. So he goes out of obedience because he knows God, because he trusts God. He's not questioning God's motives. He's not questioning God's will. He just goes. And so he goes, and then the Spirit of the Lord says, now go run alongside this chariot. And he just does that. And then when it's all said and done, after he witnesses to the Ethiopian, the Spirit of God comes and, and takes him away to a different ministry. So what you see is that Philip's evangelism is rooted in his worship of God. God tells him to do that, and he listens to God. You know, Philip isn't struggling with evangelism as most of us are. He's not ridden with guilt. He doesn't feel his pressure. He doesn't feel like he has to do it out of duty. No. He does it out of his relationship with God. He listens to God. He prays to God. He enjoys God. And when God tells him to do something, he does it. It's very important to see that our evangelism must be rooted in our relationship with God. We should want God to be glorified, and we can do that through Evangelism. Let me speak of my own experience. And I hope that you would relate to that. I think you will relate to that. I have a problem with evangelism. I'm not an evangelist. I struggle with that. It's hard for me. I am often cowardly when I speak to people about Jesus. I'm often insecure as to how they're going to see me, especially if it's somebody that I come across all the time, like a neighbor or a co-worker or or something like that. It's, it's hard for me because I'm fearful of how my reputation is going to be changed by that. I'm going to look foolish. Are they going to not want to talk to me afterwards? All this stuff is in my heart. And so a lot of times I don't take those opportunities to witness, which brings guilt and shame and the cycle repeats. So when I think about myself and my struggles with evangelism, I realize that really... It has very little to do with my personality, which is shy by nature. It has very little to do with my time management. I just don't have time to witness. It has very little to do with 
with being trained in how to do that and the latest techniques of evangelism. It's very little to do with that. Now some, but very little. It has all, all of my problem has to do with my relationship with God. So my problem with evangelism is really not a problem with evangelism, it is a problem with worship. All that insecurity and that fear and that hesitancy and that cowardice stems from my relationship with God. The lack of the relationship with God. The struggle that I have with my relationship with God. My problem with evangelism is really a problem with worship. Now, I've noticed that the stronger my connection with God is, the deeper my communion with Him is, the more fulfilling my relationship with God is, the more natural and courageous my evangelism is. There's a clear connection in my life between the two. Many times, I don't witness because I don't worship. An effective evangelist is always first a close friend of God. Now, I wonder if that's true of you. I wonder if it's true that you don't witness and are fearful of telling somebody about Jesus and the Gospel because you are not worshiping God, because your relationship with God is wanting, because you don't feel like you are full of His love. Now, Paul talks about this motivation for evangelism in 2 Corinthians 5, and he talks about the love of God that controls us. Or other translations would say the love of God compels us. If you have a real, fresh experience of God's love in your life, this will overflow in evangelism. The best and the greatest motivation for telling somebody about Jesus is your own enjoyment of God through Christ. Now, have you uh, spent time with somebody who had just started dating, and so they're, they're hanging out with you, but really all they want to talk about is the person they're dating? Have you had that experience? Were, were you talking to them, and all they want to talk about is how great that person that they're in love with is, and what they like and what they don't like, and how great they are, and how good-looking they are, and how successful they are, and what kind of movies they like, and what shirt they wore on Tuesday... It just overflows. And you just can't shut them up because their experience of, of love to that person is so real for them, that's all they want to talk about. You can distract them by other stuff, but in their mind, all they're thinking about is that person. Now, it's very similar in our Christian life. If your experience with God is like that, you're in love with Him, and I know I'm using this romantic, emotional language, and I'm okay with that. If you're, if you're in love with God, if your experience with Him is so fresh, it's so real, it's, it's alive, naturally, you'd want to talk to others about Him. Naturally. Let me give you another analogy. Let's say somebody stops by your house at night and you, you just made this great dinner. It's one of your favorite dishes and it, it just turned out great. And you made a lot of it. Because you were kind of hoping somebody would come by to share with. And you're just going to insist that that person stays for dinner. You're not going to take no for an answer. They're going to have to stay and they're going to have to enjoy it with you and you're so excited about it. And you can have a great time. 
great meal together. Your relationship is going to deepen. There's going to be a lot of joy in just sharing something that is good in your life with somebody else. Now imagine a different circumstance. Somebody stops by your house and it's a Thursday night and you had plans to eat the Monday night's leftovers on Thursday. It's not particularly good. It's old. It's kind of slimy in the fridge already. And you're not going to insist on that person staying at your house and sharing a meal with you. You're just not going to do that because it's really not that good. Now, it may do for you, but not for your friend. Now imagine your spiritual life in those terms. Some of us today are eating that meal from Monday, that experience with God that we've had a long time ago. And we still keep going back to that. And it got old and it's moldy and it's slimy, but we just keep pulling it out. And we hope that now that's going to refresh us. And it can't. You need a new experience of God. You need a fresh step in your relationship with Him. You need to see Him in a different light. You need to enjoy Him in a different way. And if it's real, if this great meal that you have, it really is good, and there's really enough of it for everybody, of course you're going to insist that others will share it with you. Now, time for application. When you think about your relationship with God, what is it like? Is it like the great meal you just made? Is it like a romantic relationship with, with your spouse or with your boyfriend or girlfriend where you're just, you're just so excited about them? Or is it just going through the motions? Yes, you come to church and you do what you're supposed to do, but you do it out of duty because you have to. Are you enjoying God? Do you listen to Him? Does He speak to you? When you read the scriptures, is it exciting? God says something to you. He says something about Himself. He says something about you. Your relationship with Him deepens. Do you talk to Him in prayer? Do you sometimes just pray and forget about the time? Do you just have so much to tell Him? Do you regularly meditate on His nature and on His works in your life? Do you take time just to say, I'm not trying to get anything out of this prayer time with you, God. I, there's nothing that I'm trying to fix in my life right now. I, just, I want to just look at you. I want to realize that you're a beautiful God, that different attributes in your nature work together in perfect harmony. And that's just great. And it's kind of cool for me to see that. So I'm going to meditate on a particular attribute. And you just take time and you think, Scripture tells me that God is merciful. What does it mean to me? And you just kind of turn it over in your mind. And you, and you let your emotions go to where your mind is. Or you say, Scripture tells me God is jealous. What does that mean? How does He express His jealousy for me? And so you think about it. And then, you, then your mind wanders to the cross. And you remember that time when Jesus died for you. When He was beaten and, and tortured and hurt. And He did that for you because He loved you. And all of a sudden, your emotions kick in. Your affections are for Him. And you think, this is, this is great to be with Him and to realize how much He loves me. That He's not going to let me go. Now, is that, does that describe your relationship with Him? I'm not saying it's like that all the time. I mean, we all go up and down and there's circumstances. But is that the kind of relationship that you have with God? 
when you come to church, is it just so you can come to church and you're a Christian, that's what Christians do on Sundays? You check in, you listen to something, maybe you find something in a sermon, maybe not. Maybe you say hi to somebody, maybe not. When you come to the Lord's table, do you come realizing that you can see the Gospel? His body broken, His blood spilled for you? That it's not just a ritual that's empty of meaning, that it's very meaningful, that something mystical happens when you come to the table? I mean, is that something that, that goes through your mind? Do your hands tremble a little bit when you reach for the bread? Because you know it is so precious. That what He did for you is so special for you. What do you feel when you sing praises to Him? And I don't mean just when there's a lot of people here. You know, everybody shows up. We have those Sundays when everybody shows up. Music seems to be just right on. And, and there's just this emotional surge and everybody's excited. That's great. Those are good times. But just when you sing to God and you use the words that were written by others and and you follow the melody that was written by someone else and you sing to God, does it touch you? Does your heart engage emotionally in worship? I'd like us to think about our relationship with God because we can't be effective evangelists unless we are effective worshipers. I'd like you to look at your life. Do you feed and cultivate this relationship with God? If you were to tell me about your day, would I, without knowing who you are, be able to say, yeah, this person is in a relationship with God? You can tell by the way they use their time and energy and resources. Think about your life. Any relationship needs cultivating. It needs to be invested in. So, very simply just to get very practical. If you don't read your Bible every day, start. If you don't pray every day, start. Don't set lofty goals at first, but just take some time to read a chapter, chapter of Scripture, to pray the Lord's Prayer, to commit your cares for that day to the Lord and reflect on who He is for you. Alright, that's enough about that. Let's look at evangelism and friendship. Friendship is that horizontal dimension of church life. That's human relationships. That's how we relate to each other and others. And let's look at this dimension from verse, at verse 30 and 31. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now there's a lot more I think, behind the eunuch's simple question, how can I understand it unless somebody guides me, that we might find at first reading. We know that the eunuch traveled all the way from Ethiopia to worship God in Jerusalem. This is a very long journey. Ethiopia is, is, was a fairly large kingdom, much larger than the country of Ethiopia is today, and it was south of Egypt. So he had to go all the way up north in Africa and then go around the sea to get to Jerusalem. Long journey, dangerous journey. The eunuch was a busy man. He's in charge of the treasure for the queen, Candace. This is an important job. It's like you know, chairman of the Federal Reserve or a minister of treasury in some governments. This is a very important job. So he takes time out of his important, busy job, right? Takes months, 
probably for the whole journey, we're talking about months, traveling to Jerusalem to learn about this God. And we don't know where he heard about the God of Israel, but there's obviously this deep, desperate search for God, and he thinks that he might find God in Jerusalem, so he goes to the temple. And a terrible thing happens at the temple. Now, it's not described in Scripture, but I'm fairly certain that's what happened, knowing what usually happened at the temple, knowing the law of Moses and how it worked out in worship in Jerusalem at that time. He comes, and he's a foreigner, which people can easily tell by his clothes, by his dark complexion. He's an African. He doesn't look like a Jew. And he's a eunuch. What's a eunuch? We don't have eunuchs today, really. Eunuch is a castrated man who was groomed and trained to be in the government's work, in the government office. They would take, people in those times would take boys and they would castrate them so they could be focused on the work for the royal court. Now, why would they do that? Well, this is a very simple reason. And of course, our sensibilities today really don't allow us to, to feel good about anything like that, right? And nor should we. But very common practice in those days. The reason they did it is that if you castrate a man, he cannot form a family or produce any children, which makes it really easy for him to stay loyal to the queen or the king. There's no, there's no children that he needs to worry about. He's not going to be part of any coup because he has no, uh, he has no family to pass on the influence and the riches to. Women would not give him time of day because there's no prospect of marriage or children. So he would not be able to form deep relationships with any woman. As far as men goes, men despised eunuchs. They didn't think they were whole men. They didn't think they were manly. And so they would just not really give them any attention. So the eunuchs lived in this sort of this third gender society. Really only just hang out with each other. And they were despised by women and men. And the politicians simply used them. Now that's, that's the culture he comes from. Remember, he's seeking God. There's a spiritual hunger. He comes to Jerusalem. He gets to the temple. And what happens? The Jews are not going to let him in because he's a foreigner. He's not Jewish. So right away, he's only going to go this far into the worship. He's going to stay outside of the temple. And secondly, he's a eunuch. And by, and by then, the historians tell us that you know, a man who was made eunuch as a boy would develop certain physical traits even a certain smell. And so people would be able to tell that he is a eunuch. As a eunuch, he can't get circumcised. He can't be welcomed into the community of faith. According to the law of Moses, and this is Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, eunuchs were not allowed in public worship. If a man isn't whole, he would not be allowed to worship God, even if he was Jewish. So imagine the frustration of this man who makes a months-long journey gets to the temple and is turned away. And so he's returning home. Nobody would explain anything to him about God. And that's why he came. So he does the best next thing. He buys a scroll of Isaiah. He knows that that prophet is read in Jewish synagogues and at the temple. So he buys a scroll and he says, I'm going to try to figure out on my own who this God is. Nobody would talk to him. Nobody would share the gospel with him. So he's reading the scroll as he's riding on the chariot Philip comes along, and a marvelous thing happens. Philip talks to him. Philip, a Jew, talks to him. It's amazing. 
Nobody else would. He can't understand Isaiah on his own. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And eunuch says, how can I understand? Nobody will take time to explain it to me. And Philip says, I can do that. And so he climbs in and sits down next to him in his chariot. And they spend time together. We don't know how long. It could be hours or days. Yeah. That's totally, that's totally fine, Sarah. And so eunuch gets a friend. The eunuch gets somebody who will talk to him about the gospel. And so, what does Philip do? He's just nice to him. I mean, this is not anything really super spiritual. He's just nice to him. And he shares the gospel with him. But remember the kind of life that eunuch has led up to this point. Remember his experience at Jerusalem. This act of kindness that somebody would sit next to him in the chariot, not put off by, by his physical appearance, not put off by his, by his unwholeness, and just speak the gospel to him, that's huge. And so the eunuch believes. Now we need to think about our friendship with people as something that is often a prerequisite for our speaking to them about Jesus. Very often a relationship with a Christian precedes a relationship with Christ. We need to show that we accept the person, ourselves. We're willing to be their friend before we talk about God's acceptance and God's friendship to them. Now, I'm not advocating that you never talk to them about Jesus. You have to talk to them about Jesus. Evangelism is about proclamation of the Gospel. But it's in context of friendship. Now, this is my story. The way I became a Christian was through the witness of a, a young couple who moved next door uh, to me across the hall in my apartment building. This young couple from Colorado, they came to Ukraine to, to witness, to evangelize. And they were not particularly mature themselves, nor well, were they well trained. But they took me in. A 16-year-old kid whose dad wasn't around, whose mom was working and was trying to, worried about me, stuff I was getting into, and not much meaning in my life, not much joy in my life. And yet this young couple just started hanging out with me, had me over for dinner and lunch. If they would go somewhere, they would go say, hey, I want to check out this park in the city. Can you go with us? I'd go with them. They just included me, and they were friendly to me. They were nice to me. It made a big difference for me. So when they spoke the gospel, when they talked about Jesus, and the acceptance with God that I can have, and the meaning and joy that I can have in Jesus, it mattered to me because it came from them. It wasn't a street, street preacher, which I had heard before. It wasn't somebody just, just you know, drawing something on a napkin in a random conversation. It was somebody who invested in my life. Somebody who loved me. It made a big difference. Now, why do we as a church make such a big deal about being a welcoming community? About making sure that we have greeters, making sure that, that uh, our elevator works, making sure that our kids' program is set up to include kids with special needs, making sure that people with disabilities are, are welcome here and are accepted here. Why? 
Well, this is the reason. We want to be that kind of community that will be friendly to others, especially to those who might not have many friends, who might be marginalized by, by our culture. That's who we want. That's who we want to hear the gospel. So would you just renew your commitment to that kind of church, to that kind of ministry, where it's going to be weird some Sundays, where, where we don't know how to deal with some things, but that's okay. We want all sorts of people here. And we're going to adjust to them. We're going to be their friends. When we do respite on, on Thursday nights and families affected with special needs bring their children and they drop them off and we have volunteers watching their kids for two, three hours and the parents can go run an errand or go, go on a date. For many families that come, this is a very meaningful time. Because they don't have to pay. We're not trying to get anything out of that. We're simply there to serve them, to be their friend, to maybe relieve some of the burden in their lives. It's a huge deal for them. And so our prayer is that when we do speak the gospel to them, their hearts are going to be ready to accept it because they've seen the gospel work in our lives. Well, if you think about your life, are you a good friend? Is there someone in your life right now that, that may feel lonely and rejected? Maybe even hurt by religious people like the eunuch? Would you love them? Would you pay attention to them for the sake of Jesus? Even when it's inconvenient to you, even when culturally it's not acceptable? Would you guide them so they can understand the gospel and meet Jesus? Well, lastly, let's relate evangelism to mission. I'm going to do it really briefly because it really, not as much that it has to do with our mission, it is our mission. Evangelism is our mission. Matthew 28, this what is called the Great Commission passage when Jesus, the risen Jesus, speaks to his disciples and through them speaks to us. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus wants us to evangelize. He wants us to tell others about Jesus. So here are some ideas how we can do that. What I want to do is I want to encourage you to be intentional about evangelism, but also want to encourage you to be creative. Because we're in different contexts, you have different people around you, and there's no one formula as to how to evangelize. But if you are intentional, you can be creative. Don't use creativity as an excuse to get out of it. But use it as a way to do it in your own context. A couple ideas to keep in mind as you figure out what it looks like for you. First, pray and ask the Spirit to lead you to someone specific with whom you can share the gospel. Sit down, close your eyes, and pray and say, Jesus, would you send your Spirit to show me who I need to witness to this week? Now, my guess is that there'll be a name in your mind right away, or a couple, that Jesus has already put in your life. God has already been working on them like he was on the heart of the eunuch and ask him to send you to that person. Another idea is, look for people around you who can use a friend. Who is it in your life 
in your neighborhood, at your work. They're just in general lonely and isolated. You might come in contact with a community of refugees, community of immigrants that need help. You may know families affected with disability and special needs. And so you invite them to church. You say, how can I help you? Can I just come and help you do something on, on, on a Monday night? How about a lonely neighbor? Look at your neighborhood. There must be somebody on your street, if your street is like my street, that just seems to be pretty isolated and can use a friend. So think about people like that and witness to them. Now the next idea is, I'd like you to forgive me my cleverness in this, but I wanted to give you this image, this idea, this strategy that hopefully might be helpful. Think of church on Sundays as a wedding the wedding between Christ and his bride. And think about yourself as somebody who was invited to that wedding. You got an, you got an invitation in the mail. There's an RSVP card, right? That you, have to, you have to sign and, and, and mail back, say, I'm coming. On that RSVP card, you need to say, who's coming with you? And sometimes what people will do, they'll say, just it's, it's me and plus one. You don't know who's coming with you, but you really hope you can bring a date because it's embarrassing. So... So you say, I don't know who, maybe I'll ask this person or that person. But you, you send it in and you say, plus one. I'd like you to think of church and your week through that plus one kind of strategy. Think about coming to church and you say, okay, who can I bring? Who can I bring? Who can I witness? Who can I invite? Who can I encourage to meet Jesus? And you say, okay, who's my plus one this week? Now, my last idea, and then we'll be taking communion. Uh, we have some church invites in, in the back of the Connect table um, and uh, gives basic information about our church, what we're about, our website, our phone number, that kind of stuff, our different ministries that we have. Take some with you and be creative with them. Right? We've done different things in the past. We've, we've put them at you know, various doors and mailboxes in our community. We've left them at Starbucks and um, other places like that. We've had people give them to their friends and neighbors. There's lots of ways to use them. I want you to be creative with that. Look at your life. Look at where you are. Is there a relationship with a neighbor that will allow you to invite them to church? Use that invite. Uh, Do you feel like maybe God wants you to take responsibility for your street and say, I'm going to be the evangelist for my street? And so Henderson is my street. And so I'm going to pass out these invitations. Maybe you think, oh, maybe I'd go to the L stop and as people are coming home from work, I'm going to give them invitations to church because they need Jesus. Think about ways that you can do that. I don't want you to do it out of guilt. I don't want you to do it because it's a church program. I want you to do it out of the richness of your experience with Christ and do it the way that's appropriate in your context. Well, 